So we've been working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, and today we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And by way of review, you'll remember that Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, or the book of 1 Corinthians, as a letter to the church in Corinth after he had pastored there. He founded the church in Corinth, he shepherded the church in Corinth there for about a year and a half, and he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians correcting some error. And then we also have another letter that he wrote, this harsh letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, this harsh letter that he wrote to them, correcting them. And they received that letter, they repented of their sins, and then we have 2 Corinthians, and he's writing still to correct them, to encourage them, to help them grow in their faith. And it's probably the most personal of all of the letters of Paul. It's really one of the most personal letters in all of the New Testament. And Paul, you really see him bear his heart for the church here in Corinth as he writes this letter and writes this message to them. So with that in mind, let's look at our text this morning. We're looking at 2 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16. Paul writes, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you, great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort, I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, What earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received received him with fear and trembling." I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the proclaiming and the doing of His Word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So today, as we look at 2 Corinthians 7, verses 1-6, through 6, I'm really struck by the fact that we have this massive text. And last week we looked at chapter 6, and we had a huge section of Scripture that we needed to work through. And today we have this big section once again, but I wanted to take it as one whole section because I wanted us to see the, the clear unit of thought that Paul expresses in this section. That being said, much of our time is going to be focused on the middle in verses 8-10 through 10 or 8-11 through 11 as we look at this idea of godly sorrow. And what does it mean to have godly sorrow or sorrow that is according to the will of God? And as we look at this text, verse 1, I just want to point out verse 1 serves as a bridge from last week's message to this week's message. Paul in verse 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all, all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let us cleanse ourselves. Let us be perfecting holiness, is what he says. And last week, as you remember, he talked about being an ambassador. What does it mean to be an ambassador of Christ? To be one who represents Christ. It means one who is set apart from the world. They're sanctified in Christ and they're sent into the world to represent Christ. Just like an ambassador represents a nation, so also we represent a king. We represent King Jesus in this world. So we're called to live in this world, but we're called to not be of this world. We talked about what it means that we don't, we don't look at our life in this world and look at it as such that we, we long for eternity simply because we want to get out of this world. We do long for eternity, but we also take advantage of the fact that we are sent into the world. We're not victims, but instead we are being used as ambassadors in this world that we live in now. Jesus clearly, clearly said, that He prayed not that we would be taken out of the world, but that He would send us into it to be used for His glory. So He says, in this world, as an ambassador, cleanse yourselves and be growing in this perfecting of holiness. So with that connection in mind, from chapter 6 to chapter 7, let's uh, jump right into the first point in our sermon outline. The first point is, number one, the need for boldness of speech. Number one, the need for boldness of speech. Look again at verses 2 and 3 with me. Paul writes this. He says, Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So here Paul encourages the Corinthians to make room for him and his partners in gospel ministry to make room for them in their hearts. In short, he's saying, don't forsake us and our teaching. Instead, be sanctified, be set apart with us in Christ. Be set apart from the world and set apart with us, he says, in Christ. Open your hearts wide to us and the truth of the message that we proclaim. Be set apart in Christ. That's why he says in verse 3, I do not speak to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Breaking this down, he says, I do not speak to condemn you. And the idea is, he's saying, my purpose is not to bring you punishment with my words. My purpose is not just to beat you down. Instead, my purpose, my point, is to build you up. For I have said that you are in our hearts. Or because you know that we love you, we care for you, is what Paul's saying. It's evident from Paul's life and ministry that he had a deep love for the saints. Really all the saints, but especially the saints 
in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 21 through 28, we read this. We read just of Paul's love for them. He says, In whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. He says, People are bold, yes, but I'm bold. I'm just as bold as anybody. Verse 22, he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. You think our life is tough, right? Paul says, this is what I lived through. I was bold. People say that, but I was bold. And I had every right to be bold. I I was a Hebrew. I I was an Israelite. I was a descendant of Abraham. I'm all these things. And yet, I lived through all of this. And then in verse 28, he says this amazing thing. He says, apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul says, you know what? I was beaten with rods without number, Far more in imprisonments. I was stoned. I was shipwrecked. I went hungry. I was in the wilderness. I was persecuted and labor and hardship, many sleepless nights. And above all that, I had the pressure on me of the concern for all the churches. He says, even in the midst of that, the sum total of all that he's talking about, all this pressure, he says, the biggest pressure, really this concern among all these things, was there also this heavy concern for all the churches. You see, Paul loved the saints. And Paul understood that all these things were temporary. That all the the dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, going without food, living without shelter, that all those things were temporary. Paul had an eternal mindset. And what did he care about most? That the saints were growing in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to see people know Jesus and grow in Jesus. And all those things were worth enduring if it meant that that was what was going to happen in the lives of people. Paul had a concern. That's why he can say, that's why he says, I don't speak to condemn you. I've said before that you're in our hearts. I love you. I care for you. Have I not lived that out? So getting back to verse 3 of our text, Paul says, I don't speak to condemn you. My purpose is not to bring punishment. Because, But instead, I've said before that you're in our hearts, we love you, we care for you. Two, or in order that, he says in verse 3, in order that we may die together and live together. Now this phrase, to die together and to live together, is quite remarkable. One would expect Paul to say something like, to live together and to die together. We speak like that. We'd expect him to say, we love you, we speak because we love you and we want to live with you and die with you. Yet Paul reverses the order and he says to die and live. And I think Paul's word order is purposeful. Paul has taken great pains throughout this letter to remind the Corinthians of their need to die to self and to live in Christ. 
that life only comes through death. To live in Christ only comes through the dying to oneself. He's reminded them of the fact that while their bodies are decaying, their inner man is being renewed day by day. He's reminded them again and again that after they die, their bodies will be raised to newness of life. So by saying, die together and live together, Paul's focus is not merely on being unified in this life, not merely being unified until death, but instead being unified through death. He's pointing to the Gospel, the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. And ultimately, they're dying to themselves so that they may live in Christ. Paul's focus is on their unity in Christ. So hopefully, all of this is background, and hopefully I've communicated this somewhat clearly. Paul, the point that Paul is conveying in verses 1-3 through is as ambassadors, we're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart from the world and set apart for Christ, and we're set apart together. He says, so open your hearts to us, be united with us, be joined with us, for I don't speak to condemn you, but I'm writing because I care for you and I want to see you united with us in Christ. So that's verses 1-3 through in a very brief and often uh, probably somewhat muddy nutshell. But then in verse 4 he says this, he says, great is my confidence in you, great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. The New American Standard Bible does a bit of a disservice here by translating verse 4 as, Great is my confidence in you. The Greek word translated confidence conveys the idea of boldness. And the Greek more literally reads, Great is my boldness toward you. That's why I think the King James Version and the ESV do a much better job here. And um, Mark's already thinking, yeah, you're right. See, the, the King James Version does a better job here. The King James Version communicates this much more clearly. It says, great is my boldness of speech toward you. You see the difference? Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you, is what the King James says. And the ESV says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. It's Paul's boldness, Paul's confidence toward the people. He's speaking with boldness. See, Paul's care and concern for the church caused him to be bold. He spoke plainly and clearly regarding areas that they needed to grow and change. We see that all throughout 1 Corinthians. We see that throughout 2 Corinthians. Though, as he recounts in his letters, it wasn't always easy for him to speak boldly. In order to understand this, we need to remember the events that Paul described in chapter 2. Think back a couple of weeks ago to chapter 2, where we learned that Paul sent Titus from Ephesus to Corinth with this harsh letter that we spoke of, and he was to deliver this letter, and Paul was eager to see how the church would respond. So he traveled from Ephesus to Troas, where he's supposed to meet Titus, but he's troubled, because he doesn't find Titus there. He, he shows up in Troas, and Titus isn't around, and he's troubled by it. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13 says this, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. He says, I went on to Macedonia because I couldn't find Titus, and God had opened this great door for gospel ministry, but still my heart was troubled because I wanted to know how the Corinthians would respond. Would they respond positively to this letter? How are you going to respond to this letter that I sent you? 
And then here in chapter 7, we discover what actually transpired when Paul arrived in Macedonia. Chapter 2, he says, But taking my leave, I went on to Macedonia. And then in chapter 7, starting at verse 5, he says, Even when we came into Macedonia, he picks up the story, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Conflicts without. There was external conflict. There were people attacking me. There were struggles. There were fights. There were concerns. And fears within. Even in myself, I was fearful. I was fraught with anxiety. He actually says, I was depressed. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by by the coming of Titus. And not only by His coming, but also the comfort with which He was comforted in you. So he says, I was comforted because I saw Titus. Titus came. And Titus further comforted me because I knew that he was comforted by you. As he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. You see, what he's saying is, I met with Titus, and Titus had this positive report of how you received this correction, and I was encouraged. I was encouraged by God. God comforted me in this time. But in that time when I wrote this letter and I was waiting to hear the result, I was concerned. I was depressed. I I didn't know what to expect. Paul was bold. And his boldness paid off. You know, it's not always easy to be bold, but it's always necessary. Paul understood that he needed to be bold even when it wasn't comfortable. And it certainly was not comfortable for him here in this harsh letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. So having seen, number one, the need for boldness of speech, that Paul's boldness was rooted in love and concern for the saints in Corinth, and that we need to be like him in that manner, we too need to be bold. Having seen the need for boldness of speech, now let's consider the second point in our sermon outline. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Number two, the need for godly sorrow. The need for godly sorrow. Look at verses 8 through 10 with me. Paul writes, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation but the sorrow of the world produces death. He says, I, I caused you sorrow by my letter, and I don't regret it, though I did for a little while, but I don't regret it, because sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance. And that leads to life, and that's what happened when I wrote you this letter. Now I want you to notice that from this text that sorrow, regret, and repentance are three different things in this text. Sorrow refers to pain or distress or grief. He says, for though I caused you sorrow, I caused you pain, distress, I don't regret it. For I see that this letter caused you sorrow. right? And then there's regret. It's to feel sad. Or to, to feel sad in such a way that it causes one to ask, why did I do that? Why did I do that? He says, I do not regret it. I'm not asking why I sent this letter anymore, though I did. 
When that letter went off, I questioned, why was it the right thing to do? Should I have done it? What could I have done differently? He says, I regretted it. When I sent off that letter, I thought, was it the right thing? But now I don't regret it. Why? Because I see that it had its impact on you. So we have sorrow, pain, distress, regret, which is asking, why did I do that? And then repentance. The word repentance means to change one's mind. To change one's mind. However, I want to stress something here. That's exactly what the word means in Greek, to change one's mind. However, it's unfair and inaccurate to say, as some do, that it merely means a changing of one's mind. This is popular in churches today. It's a popular theology, and it's not a biblical theology to say that it merely means a changing of one's mind. The Bible speaks of repentance in such a way that it always points to a change in one's way of life. And it does so, points to a change in one's life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude. So it's a change of thought and attitude that results in an outward change. In other words, it's a change of thought that produces a change in action. This is clear from Scripture. It's clear in Luke 3, verses 8-14. through Listen to the words of Luke 3. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham, our father, for I say to you, that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so that every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, What shall we do? And he would answer them and say, The the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors came, also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more money than what you've been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. He didn't say just believe. He said believe and change. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Truly change your mind and therefore change your actions. And if that's not clear enough, Listen to Paul's testimony before Agrippa in Acts 26. Acts 26, starting at verse 13. At midday, Paul says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up. And stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. He says, So King Agrippa... I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring to those of Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. But he's not done. Repent, change your mind, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. 
He says, King Agrippa, I didn't prove disobedient. My message was to everybody, repent and turn to God. Change your mind about God. Performing deeds appropriate to repentance. A change of thought which which is followed by a change in action. You know, none of us would say that if a husband says, you know, I don't love my wife anymore, that repentance is merely them changing their mind. That they leave their wife, they abandon their family, and then they go, well, I changed my mind. I do love my wife now. And then they continue to live apart from their wife and live in sin. That's not repentance. That's merely a changing of one's mind. Yeah, you know what? I do love them. And then they don't show or don't demonstrate fruit of that love. Or imagine a dad who abandons his children and says, you know, I do need to care for my children. And then goes on never actually doing so. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament speaks of the term metanoia, which is repentance, in this way. It says, it is radical conversion, a transformation of nature, a a definitive turning from evil, a resolute turning to God and total obedience. It affects the whole man, first and basically the center of personal life, then logically his conduct at all times, in all situations, his thoughts, his words, and acts. Puritan Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner inwardly humbled and visit is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. He, there's an inward change which results in an outward action. He goes on and says, for fur- further amplification, know that repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. Number one, sight of sin. Number two, sorrow for sin. Number three, confession of sin. Four, shame for sin. Number five, hatred for sin. And number six, turning from sin. It is not merely a changing of one's mind. I had a conversation with a man this week. I'm ashamed to say this. Somebody professes to know Christ and and said to me, I know it is wrong, but I'm going to do it. I know it's wrong, but this is what I'm doing. And I thought, you've changed your mind. That's not repentance. When I was 19 years old, God changed my mind about who He was and that resulted in action. I was walking this way and I didn't say, oh yeah, Jesus is God, great. Let's continue to go to the parties. Let's continue to do this. Let's continue to live my life the way I want to. He picked me up. He turned me around. And it was truly a gift of grace that he granted me that repentance. One more quote, Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology makes the argument that repentance, like faith, has intellectual, emotional, and volitional ramifications. He describes the intellectual element of repentance as a change of view, a recognition of sin as involving personal guilt, defilement, and helplessness. That is true, it is a changing of one's mind. But he goes on and says the emotional element is a change of feeling, manifesting itself in sorrow for sin committed against a holy God. And then the volitional element is a change of purpose, an inward turning away from sin and a disposition to seek pardon and cleansing. Folks, repentance that is missing, any one of those three elements is not genuine repentance. So getting back to our text, our text, Paul says, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. 
though I did regret it. I questioned why for a time. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though it caused you pain, though only for a little while, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, not that you were in pain, but that you were made sorrowful, you experienced pain and loss and discomfort to the point of repentance. You were grieved to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Or as many English translations say, you experienced godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Real quick, I want to read Genesis 19.15. Genesis 19.15 says this. I wasn't going to do this, so I didn't have this um, have my Bible marked for this, but Genesis 19.15. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. This is Lot. The angel tells him, You need to get up. Sodom is going to be destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. You need to get up. You need to leave. And then verses 23 through 26, we read this. It says, The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. She looked back. That's exactly what Paul is talking about when he says sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. Without looking back. It's repentance that says, I don't want to go back there. I don't ever want to go back to where I was when I was 19 years old and walking in sin. It's repentance without regret. It's a changing of one's mind and one's actions. And don't get me wrong, this is not perfect repentance. It's not me saying I don't struggle with the old self. This is me saying, at the end of the day, day by day, by God's grace, I say, never, Lord, never do I want to go back to that. I've heard way too many testimonies where people have given their testimony and they've spent an hour and a half, maybe that's an exaggeration, but an hour and a half talking about all of their sin, and then at the end they go, oh, by the way, I got saved and now I know Jesus. And they seem to glory in the past. Their whole testimony is looking back on how bad they were. That's sad, folks. We, sorrow that is according to the will of God. Godly sorrow says, I am sorry for my sin, and I've turned from it. I'm walking now in, in truth without regret. I don't want to go back. That leads to salvation. Godly sorrow produces repentance. And notice by the way, that sorrow, or that repentance is different than sorrow. Godly sorrow, says Paul, produces repentance. Don't hear me say that godly sorrow and repentance are the same thing. They are two different things. We used to tell our kids when they were little, they would say they were sorry, and you know what we would say? You should be sorry. Right? When, when, whenever in our house the rule is if somebody says they're sorry, we say you should be sorry if they did something wrong. 
And then we say, will you please forgive me? We ask for forgiveness so that we can show, I am sorry, but I'm also trying to turn away from this. I am repentant. Godly sorrow produces repentance, which leads to salvation. Worldly sorrow leads to death because it lacks repentance. In the church, there's way too much easy believism. This is all you need to do is change your mind about Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus died for your sins. If you believe that, you'll go to heaven. So walk an aisle, say a prayer, and then continue to live your life the way you want to live your life, and you'll be saved. That is not the Gospel. The Gospel speaks again and again and again a genuine changing of one's mind producing repentance. Continual repentance, by the way. I'm constantly turning away from my sin. Quickly, I know I said this before, but quickly again, Matthew 26. I want to read an account of two men who were sorrowful. One experienced godly sorrow, sorrow that led to repentance and ultimately life, and the other experienced worldly sorrow, sorrow that led to death. Matthew 26 and, 20, and the start of 27. 2669 says this, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you were talking about. When he had gone out into the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said, and said to those who were, with, who were there, This man was with Jesus the Nazareth, the, of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath and said, I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came and said to Peter, Surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear and said, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And what was Peter's response? And he went out and wept bitterly. He experienced sorrow. And we know that Peter's sorrow led him to Repentance, a change of mind that produced a change in action. Peter became one of the greatest evangelists. Peter proclaimed the name of Jesus. He turned from that sin. And then immediately after that, and I do not think this is a mistake, that Matthew puts these two accounts side by side. Immediately after that, in chapter 27, verse 1, it says, Now when morning came... All the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to, the, to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, really not that much different than what Peter did. One was verbally, the other, the other um, maybe a little bit more outwardly. But he betrayed him and saw that he, had, saw that he had been condemned. He felt remorse. This is Judas. He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. He felt remorse, seeing that he had betrayed innocent blood. He was sorrowful. Judas, unlike Peter, was not repentant. His sorrow didn't, didn't lead to life, but instead death. Jesus in John 17.2 calls Judas the son of destruction and says that he died in his sin. His sorrow was a worldly sorrow. It was a sorrow that he got caught. It was a sorrow that he did it. But it wasn't a sorrow that caused him to change his behavior, to change his actions. So having seen the need for boldness of speech and the need for godly sorrow, let's briefly, real briefly, look at the remainder of chapter 7 and see how God used Paul's boldness 
of speech to produce godly sorrow in the Corinthian believers. Verse 11 of chapter 7, he says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent of the matter. He says, this, this boldness of speech that I proclaim to you, it produced godly sorrow. And then, in verses 12 through 16, he says, that's why I wrote to you in this way. That's why I was bold. He says, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. He says, I wrote these things, I was bold, so that you would, so that in you would be produced a godly sorrow, a sorrow that led to repentance. So by way of review, we see this need for boldness of speech, and this need for godly sorrow, that Paul was bold, and that his boldness produced a godly sorrow in the Corinthian believers. So the question is, so how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this message and apply it? Well, number one, we need to see the need, not just for sorrow, but for godly sorrow in our lives, and in each other's lives, and in those in the world. We need to see that people shouldn't just feel sorry for their sin or sorry that they sin, but they should have sorrow that leads to repentance. A full changing of one's mind that leads to a changing of their action. We need to see the need, not just for sorrow, but for godly sorrow, especially in our own lives. And number two, we need to let that need, that need for godly sorrow, seeing that godly sorrow is the sorrow that leads to life, We need to see that need and let that need produce in us a boldness, folks. We need to be like Paul. We need to be bold with each other. We need to call each other out when we sin. And that's hard. It's hard to do. But we need to see our sin so that we can understand our sin and not just be sorry that we sin, but so sorry that we repent of that, we turn from it. Not just a change of mind and say, oh, I believe that was wrong. Not like the man who said, yes, it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. But instead, sorrow that leads to repentance, for that is life-giving sorrow. We need to be bold with each other. And we need to be bold with the world. Proclaiming a true gospel message. Not walk an aisle, say a prayer, believe in Jesus, accept Jesus into your heart. Those are not all bad things to say. But those things we have to have people understand. That Jesus clearly taught, that Paul clearly taught, that the Scripture clearly teaches repentance. We are are to proclaim the message of repentance, a turning away from sin. And you know the beauty of that? People can't do that. That's the beauty of that. This is not a message of, you need to repent, and therefore you will somehow earn your salvation by no longer sinning. Instead, it's a message of, you can't do it. Repent, which, by the way, you can't do. You see, the message of Scripture, the message of the Gospel, is meant to leave us utterly helpless. And when we are utterly helpless, and we go before a God that says, God, I know I need to not sin against you, but I can't do that, then by grace, He saves us, and He grows us in holiness. Holiness, He sets us apart for him. I just want to finish with a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He says this, I have never preached to you 
that you may live in sin if you only believe in Jesus. I have never preached that you should be saved without being purified in heart. No, salvation, which this pulpit has proclaimed, is, in, is not salvation in sin, but salvation from sin. Not license to evil, but deliverance from evil. That's the boldness we need to have, folks. As we proclaim this gospel, as we're ambassadors, set apart for Jesus and sent into this world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. God, give us boldness. Boldness to proclaim the truth of your gospel. God, not that we may say that people may add your Son, Jesus, to their lives, but that instead, God, they would have a complete change of mind, a complete change of heart, a complete change of being that would lead to a complete change in direction. God, that their minds would be changed, that their affections would be changed, and that their directions would be changed by your grace. God, may we proclaim nothing less to this world, and may we boldly call each other out, and may we boldly help each other live holy lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.